Um, our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 34. Please follow along in your Bibles or devices or on the screen behind me. Matthew 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors? And sinners. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often? but your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wine skins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, Go away! 
The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all the region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone in indoors, the blind men came to see him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Good morning, friends. My name is Mark. Please leave your Bibles open there. You'll be well served by keeping it uh, open in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a think about this chapter together. Let's pray. Lord God, without you we are blind, so please open our eyes. Without you we are deaf, so please open our ears this morning that we might see and hear your Son, Jesus, and believe. Amen. Uh, there is no one like Jesus. Uh, the French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte said this about Jesus. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force, Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. No one is like Jesus. If you made a list of the top 20 or even the top 10, let's say the top five most influential people in all of human history, there is no doubt that Jesus' name would be on that list. If you made a second list of all of the people in human history who have at one time or another claimed to be God, it would be a longer list. There have been lots of people who have claimed to be God. Many of them are locked up in psychiatric wards at the moment. But there is only one name that would appear on both lists, the name of Jesus. He is the only one who claimed to be God and then impacted the world as if he was. There is no one like Jesus. Uh, we began this sermon series a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 8, and we've seen so far lots of snapshots of Jesus' ministry and miracles. And in today's passage, we kind of get this whole bunch of snapshots put together. There are six episodes in what we've just read. And it's as if, as Matthew shows us these little snapshots of interactions that Jesus has with people, that he's making a collage for us to look at in order to teach us a point. I don't know if you've ever looked at one of those photo mosaics. They're these things where if you walk up close to them, you notice lots of individual little pictures. But then you step back 
And you see that all of these pictures make up one bigger picture. That's what Matthew is doing here. Now, what is the bigger picture that Matthew wants us to see in chapter 9? It's that there is no one like Jesus. His power, his wisdom, his compassion, his mercy, his kindness. In the words of Napoleon, between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. And so what I want to do with you today is to look at this magnificent picture of Jesus presented to us in Matthew chapter 9. And there's two things that Matthew is going to put to us. First of all, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus has the power to save. Jesus has the power to save. That's what we see in this portrait. The events of this chapter, as Lynn read them to us, they are simply awesome, aren't they? Jesus comes face to face in these verses with some of humanity's greatest enemies, death, disease, demons, And in each encounter, Jesus dispatches them with the greatest of ease. He barely breaks a sweat. Uh, Look with me firstly from verse 18. Uh, These two miracles we see here have been called the desperation miracles. And it's kind of easy to tell why, isn't it? This poor woman in verse 20, she'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years without any relief. I mean, the physical toll of that was only matched by the spiritual toll This was a woman who would have had to live her life as being ritually unclean, according to Jewish law. That meant that anybody that she touched or anything she sat on became unclean. She would have been a social pariah for 12 years. Now, Matthew here, as he introduces us to her, he doesn't comment on the rights or wrongs of that system, but he does want us to know that this woman was absolutely desperate on the day she met Jesus. And yet... Even her desperation pales in comparison to the trauma of the poor ruler who came before. I'm sure you know people who have been in this position, and you don't need me to tell you about the devastation that is brought by the death of a young child. It is like no other. So here is this man, and even his posture as he comes to Jesus speaks of his desperation. He's a ruler a ruler of the synagogue, a man with a reputation to protect, but he has no qualms falling on his knees before Jesus. Two desperate people then, which makes Jesus' restoration of them even more impressive because even the twin horrors of disease and death are no match for Jesus here. Verse 22, Jesus turned and saw her and said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. What a remarkable few words those are. At that moment she was healed. Now Matthew doesn't linger on this interaction very long. He moves straight on verse 23. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away, this girl is not dead but asleep. Now he's not questioning the fact of her death there. Merely the finality of it. She really was dead. His father knew she was dead. The people in the crowd knew it. Uh, The way that that worked in those days was that even the poorest family was obligated to hire not less than two pipers and one wailing woman to help lead the family in their grief at a moment like this. And so the people who were gathered there that, that day, they were professional mourners. They knew death. They knew this girl really lay there still in her bed, 
dead. And that's why they laugh at Jesus, verse 24. It's the laughter of disbelief, and I suspect if we were there, we would have joined in too. Now, there have been some amazing advances in medical technology over the last 2,000 years, and there's a great deal that we can do these days to delay death, but we're not even close to a cure. It remains our greatest enemy, the great leveller, the ultimate statistic. One in one people die, and no one lives again, and so they laugh at Jesus. But verse 25, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. (laughs) No flamboyance here from Jesus, no showmanship, just a touch. And an outcome that is inescapably obvious to everybody. Verse 26, news of this spreads throughout the whole region. Friends, there is no one like Jesus. And the next couple of miracles in this chapter are much the same. Verse 27, two blind men call out for mercy. And in verse 29, Jesus touches them and says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight is restored there and then. And then verse 32, when they're going out, a man who's demon-possessed and couldn't talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who'd been mute spoke. Now, the word that's used to describe that man there suggests that he was probably both deaf and mute and that he seemed to have been healed of both conditions. And the striking thing here, again, is just the complete lack of drama from Jesus. Matthew records the events almost as if they're just this sort of routine thing that happened. But, of course, we know that this sort of thing doesn't just happen. They don't happen unless Jesus is around. And so on any level, what Jesus is doing here is impressive. It's amazing. But Matthew is not just telling us these things to try and kind of dazzle us with Jesus, with this last collection of miracles. No, Matthew is trying to persuade us that what we see of Jesus here proves that he is God. If you go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, Chapter 35, there are some ancient words of prophecy spoken in that chapter that speak of a day uh, when God will arrive on earth to save and deliver his people. I'm going to read you those words from Isaiah 35 from verse 4. God says, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. This is promise of the day when God arrives to save. And then look at verse 5. Then, on that day, when God arrives, will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. What does that sound like to you? (laughs) Sounds like Matthew chapter 9, doesn't it? Matthew wants us to see in these miracles undeniable evidence that Jesus is, in fact, God Almighty come to earth to save his people and to establish his kingdom. And not just to save us from the enemies of death, disease and demons, but to save us from the greatest enemy, the enemy of sin that disconnects us from God. You know, the the first miracle in chapter 9 makes that much clear, doesn't it? This paralysed man is wheeled in and brought to Jesus by his friends, which, by the way, is a great model for us to follow, bringing our friends to Jesus. 
And the friends obviously want Jesus to fix this man's problem, his paralysis, but Jesus subverts their expectations and he tells the man, your sins are forgiven. Jesus looks at this man who can't walk and says, your biggest problem is sin, not your legs. And the teachers of the law, they immediately understand what Jesus is saying about himself because who can forgive sins but God alone? And here is Jesus claiming that he has that authority. I wonder, what is it you think is the biggest problem in your life right now? In a room of this size, there's probably many different answers to that question. For some, maybe your failing health. For some, you might see your biggest problem as a challenging relationship that you're in. For some, perhaps the rising cost of living. But according to Jesus... Your biggest problem and mine is sin. It is that we have turned away from the God who made us. We've ignored him, disobeyed him, and one day we will have to face him in judgment. That is our greatest enemy, and that is what Jesus has the power to save us from. This chapter is showing us that Jesus is like a doctor who has the cure for those who are sick with sin. And that is exactly how Jesus describes himself, isn't it, in verse 12. Is that how you see yourself, as someone who is sick with sin? We talk uh, these days, it's entered the the vocabulary uh, for most English speakers, of going to see Dr. Google. I wonder if you've gone to see Dr. Google. That's where you you type your symptoms into Google to try and diagnose what's wrong with you. And uh, I'm told that real doctors hate Dr. Google because uh, more often than not, we get misdiagnosed when you type your your symptoms in. Uh, Everything seems to be the Ebola virus when you find out what, what Google thinks you've got. I wonder, friends, isn't it possible that we often misdiagnose our whole lives, what's really wrong in our life. I think we do that all the time. We think our biggest problem is our health or our loneliness or our money, but no, there's a far bigger problem than that. The problem of our sinning against the holy God and being disconnected from him, that's the problem that Jesus has come to save. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's no one like Jesus. And having shown us this magnificent portrait of Jesus in this chapter, Matthew also wants to ask us a question. And the question is this, will you trust Jesus? Will you trust him? Uh, In these last two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, Matthew has shown us a wide variety of people who put their faith in Jesus as they come to him for help. They're coming in trust of Jesus. And I think Matthew deliberately wants to show us the great variety of the depth of their faith. And so I want to do with you just a quick survey of chapters 8 and 9 and and look at all of the faith on display in these chapters and see the variety of it. Do you remember all the way back at the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus heals a man with leprosy? And that man has a very simple faith. He knows he's got a problem and he knows that Jesus can meet his need. And so he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Very simple faith. 
his faith is then compared to the faith of the centurion, you remember him, with this extraordinary faith. Jesus says about this centurion in chapter 8, he says, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. That's because that man recognised Jesus' authority and his power. He said, Lord, you don't even have to come into my house. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, for a non-Jewish person to grasp Jesus' heavenly authority, that was an amazing thing. And next in chapter 8, there's the disciples. You remember them? They, they do have faith, but not much. Remember their panic in the storm? They say, Jesus, save us. We're going to drown. Now, they're right, of course, to turn to Jesus, but they're wrong to panic. So what does Jesus say? You of little faith. Why are you so afraid? In our chapter, chapter 9, verse 2, we're told that it was explicitly when Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic man and his friends that he said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. How about the faith of the synagogue ruler in verse 18? Did you catch his faith? You know that word in, in verse 18 there, that, that word but? It tells us that this is, I think, the greatest display of faith in all of the Bible. Here is this father on his knees. He says, my daughter has just died. But. <laughs> that is an amazing thing to say, isn't it? What sort of a man could follow the announcement of his, the death of his own child with the word but? Is that not the great tragedy of human death, that it leaves no room for ifs, buts or maybes? It is endlessly and unforgivingly final. But such was this man's faith, such was his recognition of Jesus' power, that he could see beyond the death of his own daughter, She's just died, but I know you can overcome, Jesus. The bleeding woman that we met, her faith, I think, is back at the other end of the spectrum. She says in verse 21, if I could only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. It's almost like she thinks his cloak has this magical ability, which kind of smacks more of superstition than it does of true faith. And yet Jesus still says to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. Literally, the word there is saved. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. And I think that's another clue that these physical healing miracles are supposed to be a picture of an even greater spiritual healing that Jesus came to bring. There's one more example in these verses before I draw all these threads together, and it's that of the blind men in verse 27. They have this faith in Jesus that's kind of noisy and persistent. At first, they follow Jesus, calling out over and over again, have mercy on us, son of David. And then when they, Jesus goes inside, they follow him in, at which point he stops and he asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, that's the only time in all of these chapters that Jesus makes the point of double-checking whether the person believes. And it's only when they say, yes, Lord, that he touches their eyes and says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Now, he doesn't mean in proportion to your faith. No, he means in response to your faith, that their sight is now restored. Now, I take it that Matthew has very deliberately given us all of those windows into people's varying levels of faith. He's done it for a reason. And I think the reason is that he wants to show us how kind Jesus is to all these different people. 
Some people are commended for remarkable faith. Some people are criticised for their lack of faith. Some are theologically spot on, while others are kind of all over the shop in a cloud of confusion. And yet Jesus helps them all. Isn't he kind? Despite the differences in their strength of faith, Jesus saves all of these people in exactly the same way to exactly the same extent. Because really, when you strip it all back, each of these people have two things in common. Number one, they have a deep sense of their own need. And number two, they have a sense that Jesus can meet that need. The strength of their faith is irrelevant. And isn't that a wonderful surprise to find in the Bible? Let me try and illustrate this for you. I want you to imagine that you're standing at the top of a high cliff, looking over down to the ground below. And as you you lean over, the ground underneath your feet starts to crumble and you slip and you're falling. You're in desperate need in that moment, aren't you? And as you you look back to the cliff vanishing behind you, you see a, a branch sticking out from the side of the cliff. The branch is your only hope. You look at it and it looks to be strong enough to support your weight. So how can that branch save you? In that moment, if your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that this branch really is strong enough, if you know all the facts about the type of tree that this branch belongs to, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. But if instead in that moment, in the midst of all your doubt and confusion, if you reach out and grab it anyway, you'll be saved. Why? Because it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you, you see? Even the weakest faith can save you because it's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of who your faith is in. And I find that personally to be a massive encouragement as somebody whose faith is rarely as strong as I would like it to be. And so maybe today you need to hear this from Jesus, to be told to stop worrying about how good your faith is and to start thinking a little bit more about the one in whom your faith rests. You know, sometimes we do feel like Jesus, he must be ready to give up on us. My faith is so weak, so unimpressive. But if that's you, friend, remember that Jesus is the one with the power to save you. No matter how fragile your faith is, he met the need of both the bleeding woman and the synagogue ruler. Isn't he kind? So take heart. Maybe today, though, you're here as somebody who needs to put your faith in Jesus for the first time. You've got that sense of your own desperate need for God. You know the depths of your own heart. There's no hiding that. And you've got an awareness that just maybe Jesus can be the person to meet your need. Sure, you've still got questions. But if that's you, then, friend, don't let your doubts stop you from putting your faith in Jesus. Of course, Jesus, he wants to grow you, he wants to change you and lead you, but he's got a lifetime to teach you and sharpen your understanding, and you don't actually need great levels of faith to begin the Christian life. You just need your faith to be in the right place, in the one who has the power to meet your deepest need. 
Will you trust Jesus? All it takes is to come to him like these blind men did and to say, Lord, have mercy on me. One of the great sadnesses in these chapters is that not everybody embraces Jesus in faith. In fact, some are very clear that they want nothing to do with Jesus at all. Uh, It's a little depressing that both these chapters, 8 and 9, both end having been so heavy on the miracles and the signs and the demonstrations of who Jesus is. They both end in the same way. In chapter 8, it's the townspeople who are begging Jesus to, to be gone, to leave their region. Here is God come to save them. Here is God's kingdom arriving on earth and they don't want anything to do with it. And then in chapter 9, at the end of the passage we read, the Pharisees are blind to what's happening right in front of their faces. They've seen his miracles. They can't deny Jesus' power, but their minds are made up. He's on the devil's side, they say. And very soon they're going to plot to kill him. What do you see when you look at Jesus? There's a moment in C.S. Lewis's uh, second Narnia book, Prince Caspian, when Lucy meets Aslan the lion. They've been apart for a little while. And Aslan, in those books, if you've read them, he is a Christ figure. And Lucy gazes into Aslan's large face and she's struck by his beauty and his glory and his power. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger And Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one. And Lucy's a little bit confused. She says, not because you are bigger? I am not, says Aslan. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's how it is with Jesus. What do you see when you look at him when you look at this collage that Matthew has put together for us in his gospel, is Jesus someone you're going to dismiss, someone you're going to disagree with, someone you're going to disbelieve? Or as you look at him, are you struck by his power and beauty and glory? As you look at Jesus, do you see the one who stands alone in all of human history, the one with unrivaled power over our enemies, the only one who both claimed to be God and then impacted the world as though he were, the one who founded his empire on love and compassion and mercy and for whom countless millions would be willing to die at this very hour. More than that, do you see the one who died for countless millions in love? There is none like Jesus. Won't you trust him? Let's pray. Loving Lord Jesus, to you belongs the glory and honour and power and praise forever and ever. You have come to rescue. And so please, rescue us. Give us the faith to reach out to you and ask for your mercy.